This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. Hey there, React friends. This week and next, we're taking a quick detour from our React Conf 2019 interviews to share a few chats that I have been excited about for months. Today, we're talking with Kitze about his transition from open source to product, what his development browser, Sizzy, has taught him about business, and the dangers of our hype-driven development cycle. We discuss what we think is wrong with the culture of web development today and how to keep focused on skills that won't be consumed by designer-developer robots. This week is made possible by G2i and Clubhouse. As a contracting web developer, do you find the back and forth of coordinating development work and finding new business challenging? The constant tug of war is what took me out of the contracting game. I hated interrupting a good code flow to take a sales call and send invoices. I just wanted to work in React and get critical features into customers' hands. G2i lets you do exactly that. It's contracting on easy mode. They market you and your skills directly to companies. They manage all logistics, contracts, invoicing, and payments. Meanwhile, you get personal support from their incredible team. And best of all, you join a collective of talented React and React Native developers available in Slack to help you through the most challenging problems. If you're a contractor, don't go it alone. Partner with the amazing people at G2i. Visit g2i.co and find opportunities you'll love. G2i. We vet. You get hired. It's that simple. Now let's talk about Clubhouse. If you work on a team like mine, chances are your project management pipeline is confusing. Developers prefer tracking progress in GitHub. Managers have discussions in Basecamp and third-party services like Zapier send notifications to Trello and Slack to keep every other team abreast of change. Not terribly integrated. This is where Clubhouse comes in to save the day. Clubhouse is project management that brings everyone on every team together. They know that design, front-end, back-end, marketing, and management all have different project pipelines, and they give you the tools to manage all of them. Tools for both structured and unstructured workflows that are friendly, fast, have great user experience, and come with all of the integrations you need. Clubhouse has made all core features completely free for teams up to 10 people. And right now, React Podcast listeners get two months free on any paid plan. Give it a try at clubhouse.io slash react. Kitze, welcome to React Podcast. Thank you. Thank You, you nailed it. I nailed it? <laughs> Everyone is like, Kitza, Kitsi, Kito. It's Kitze. <laughs> I had a... Uh, I had, Laura Schenk on the other day, and I thought for sure that I had it, and I welcomed her to the show, and she's like, no, you didn't nail it. And I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that I got it. I'm glad that I got it. For anyone listening, it's Kitze. Kitze, yes. yes. First time. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so uh, you just gave a talk at React Amsterdam, is that right? Uh, it was React Live. I think that was the name of the conference. Yeah, React Live in Amsterdam. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So React Amsterdam. How was that? How was that conference? 
It was great. It has the craziest screen you can see at any conference. I don't know if you saw the the photos no. of the speakers, but you have like this 360 surround screen that literally surrounds the entire theater. It's like I don't know how many meters tall. It's literally insane. And everyone had to do live coding. So because it's like a spectacular screen and they were like, "Oh, come on, let's show off the screen with your coding skills." So all of the talks were actually supposed to be live coding. But I got myself a MacBook Air like the biggest idiot that I am and a MacBook Air cannot handle coding let alone live coding so I just chickened out and I did another talk instead of a live coding talk yeah I couldn't risk it I mean that seems like as a conference organizer that seems like a nightmare waiting to happen I mean live coding is always a, a disaster most of them were like I think 90% of the speakers were supposed to give a live talking code so it less like a big risk for the for the organizers Oh my gosh that's ridiculous Um so I had a I have a friend um Eric Bouchard he was there uh at React Live I think he also gave a talk and um he came back and he was he was just raving about you he was super excited to have like actually met you and he <laughs> he said that you were like the Dave Chappelle of React wow and I I'm, I'm curious how you feel about uh how you feel about being the Dave Chappelle of React well it was not something that I was going for but I always tried since my first talk it was like very technical So as I was giving my first talk a couple of years ago I slowly just converted slide by slide and I added a bit more comedy and a bit more funny slides of course related to the topic and now it ended up like after 2 years of modifying that same talk 2 3 years it now is just like a stand up comedy about react basically <laughs> I mean it also delivers the point that it needs to deliver but it also has some some funny parts because I think <clears throat> the mistake that a lot of speakers are doing on stage is they're going uh to tech technical yeah. with their talks. So even the most advanced, I don't know, developers, I don't know, seniors or whatever you call them, even if they sit on the first row full of energy, they still cannot concentrate and follow a technical a really really technical talk. And most of the speakers are preparing like a super technical talk and then they lose people have the way have the way into the talk. So what I'm trying to do is to have them like deliver some sort of strong message and give them a couple of options, couple of things to think about after my talk but not go too deep into into one of the topics whether it's technical or or whatever it is so yeah i think i think so far i've been giving this talk for one year this exact talk with with the name but it's been, i've been pulling slides from my previous talks and so on and i think i still have um, a lot of places where i can still give this talk with the with the same material yeah so what is the what's the overall topic of the talk for people who haven't seen it Um it's navigating the hype driven uh world of front end development oh, wow. without going insane. <laughs> so that that was the first title and then someone jumped on me on Twitter. I imagine there's a lot of humor available in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And someone jumped on me on Twitter for using the word insane. There was like you cannot use without going insane and I was like, "Okay, can I change it to crazy?" And they were like, "No, that's the same thing." So I changed it to nuts and then someone in the audience might have been like, "Well, my cousin is allergic to nuts. You cannot say <laughs> without going nuts." So I just renamed it to navigating the hype driven front end world period. You just, that's, you just took it that's off, the just talk. cut it off. Yep. Yeah. Cannot do it anymore. Causing yeah. too much drama. Oh man, oh man. But it's an it's it's an interesting topic to me and I refuse like to give another talk yeah. until I run out of people to give this talk to like Sarah, Sarah Vieira have seen it like has seen it six times I think. And she she's like I would see it I would totally see this again so I'm like until I have those kind of people I'm going to give this talk again because I think in every conference no matter how technical it is you, we have to talk a little bit about this topic like we're too much like 
head down into the, the, the hype and we're just working on things for our own developer satisfaction instead of thinking of the users. And I think a lot, a lot, a lot of developers are stuck in this loop, like everyday loop of just learning new things, filling your head with a lot of information, but then the end of the day, not delivering a lot to your end users or not solving any problem. So with my talk, I'm, I'm trying like, usually it's, it works well when it closes the conference because after all the technical talks, <laughs> all the people are filled with all sorts of information. They're like, fuck, I need to refactor everything when I go <laughs> to, to my work on Monday. So when I close the conference with a talk, I give them a little bit like chill. You'll be fine with your stack. You'll be fine with your libraries. You'll be fine with whatever you're doing. Just think about the user and solve the, the user's problem. So that's more or less the talk. Yeah, I love this idea. So many times, I think... It's even just baked into this concept of being a knowledge worker, right? Like the idea that you yeah. are what you know. And it, it's so devastating, I think, to see people just scrambling and not uh, having some kind of like restraint system that reminds them, hey, like what matters is that you're productive, not that you know all yeah. of the stuff that like could make you like marginally more productive. Yeah. Um, but like what matters is that you can like sit down and do the work. Like if you needed to, you know, make a product or like do this thing like in a week that you could actually sit down and do it and not get distracted by all of the like the hype and the exciting new like things, you know, when you sit down, like actually just do the work. Yeah, we we were a little bit like the, those dog races where they're chasing rabbits. <laughs> so the rabbit would be like some flashy new library and we're like, holy shit, I have to do it. <laughs> like I saw a documentation library, that dogs.io thingy that came up, I don't know, last year. And immediately my brain is like, I have to document something. I don't. I didn't even have to a library or something to document, but you're like, this is so flashy, I have to do something with it. You're not thinking about a problem or a user, it's just, yeah. It's wild. Well, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because you seem to have uh, really lived enough in in that space, in that reality to have like come out the other side and like been like, you know what, this is kind of uh, nuts, I guess, or not nuts, whatever, whatever's not yeah. people, whatever, whatever's nuts that people aren't allergic to. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because it seems like you've gone through a lot of this. Um, but first I have to, before we go into all of that, I have to ask you um, yeah. how much has your rapping that you've been putting on YouTube played into kind of the way that these talks are formed? Because you make a lot of, there's a lot of satire, I think, in there and a lot of commentary on the industry as a whole. How did you, how'd you get into that? I don't know. I don't know what, what happened. Like last year, I wanted to, like, as you can see this room, I, I got all of this acoustic foam and all of the equipment just to record courses. And something in me, like, I don't want to record courses. You know, I'm doing <laughs> online trainings, but I was just procrastinating by decorating this room, by getting all the equipment. And when I was done, I'm like, fuck, I don't want to record courses. So I was like, what should I record? <laughs> and I decided to make like a funny rap song about web development. So that's how the first one came to be. And then the second one was that dude who tweeted about 10X engineers. Yes. I saw the tweet and I got so pissed and I'm like, this deserves a rap song. And now I have a third one, which is not released, but it's too risky to release because it's going at the old guard. I think oh. it's going at the developers who, who I think they're holding us back with their opinions, articles, blah, blah, blah. And I think that if I post it, I'm going to lose a lot of followers, but it's going to happen soon eventually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worth the risk, right? Yeah, yeah. I have an opinion. I want to state it like whatever happens, happens. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Well, I, I have always uh, appreciated that kind of... um news creation right like that that kind of moment of commentary because there's so many blog posts that just kind of it's 
it, the ones that are commentary just kind of feel like a part of the the ether. They're just like always there. Someone always has an yeah, opinion. Yeah. But when you present it in that way, it's just kind of uh, fun and disarming in a in a different type of way. Yeah. And also relatable. I mean, I spend so much time like finding the right mic, finding the right like acoustic treatment, finding the like right whatever. And when I sit down to record something, I'm like, yeah. Nah. The 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 funniest thing is back like I don't know five six years ago when I didn't have like literally any professional equipment. So I had like the the cheapest guitar. I didn't have an audio card. I had a very old Toshiba laptop or something like that. I was recording way more uh, guitar videos, covers, songs, yeah. whatever. I was recording way more. So it's not about the equipment. It's just about I don't know whether it's the moment or. Yeah. But I think like it it all plays together with this like the topic that we're gonna talk about. I think being a front end developer right now doesn't let you be calm and enjoy any other hobby or enjoy anything else that you're doing in life, whether that's recording courses or playing the guitar or just doing anything at home, because you're all the time you're on the edge like, oh, I need to open Twitter, I need to open Reddit, let me see what's going on in front end development. Maybe my my pain is now, maybe my problems are are solved. So I think constantly just this feeling of living on the edge that things are happening so fast in the front end development doesn't allow us to like, um, I don't know, create in peace or be creative or do creative work more than, I don't know, 20 minutes without thinking, what are the others doing? Yeah. Do they approve of what I'm doing right now? So it's it's all connected, I think. Well, it's really interesting that you mentioned the that feeling of, has someone else solved my problem? And I'm curious, how much of, of this uh, feeling that we need to be stay on top and you know find new libraries is attached to an insecurity of thinking that maybe you couldn't do the job that you're supposed to do or that sense of imposter syndrome that a lot of people have that at some point they'll get found out for not being able to handle you know x type of feature development um do you think that that plays into the this this avarice for uh, for all of these uh, new things that are coming out I think it definitely plays a role, but I think the major thing that that's combined with that is the is the cause of our behavior is that we don't give a crap about the end user and we don't give a crap about money. So those are the two <laughs> big topics that I'm talking about in the blog post and in the like when you forget about two things, you're left with most of your day free for your positive procrastination, what I call it. So when your employer tells you to employ to like do some task, let's say he tells you to implement a login on a on a on on an app and instead of you solving it the way you know and the way you know it can be done in like 20 minutes it's like two input fields and you send them with jquery or whatever you sit down and you learn redux redux form and redux saga in the same day and then you spend like eight hours trying to combine those three libraries into like a login form and then at the end of the day you feel this crazy satisfaction that you're i don't know a senior a smart developer that you do so much blah 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 but when you think about it your user is going to be like huh, i can log in whatever so i think that's the that's the biggest thing we're completely forgetting about all of the important end goals and then when you're left with a lot of time at your company you're going to you're going to pursue all of these like articles courses stuff that you eventually don't need to know it know all of that you know I think like right now, I haven't seen a crazier time where people are constantly eager for knowledge. I mean, that's not bad, but don't dive deep into an article about SVG that's like 30 pages long when you're not doing anything with SVG right now, because six months later, when you're going to work with SVG, you're going to Google how to create a circle with SVG. So I think my advice is pretty plain and, and it sounds really stupid and repetitive, but it's not like everyone implements it and it's super weird. Yeah, there's this... Super weird to me. It, 
you know, we talk about just-in-time compilers a lot, but we don't have this like same rule of thinking for like just-in-time education for ourselves like where we actually like start along the course and be like yeah oh actually i don't know how to do this one thing i don't know how to draw a circle with svg so i'm gonna learn how to do just that not read a whole book on svg not spend yeah. the rest of the day on a course on svg but just draw the freaking circle yeah it sounds simple right but it's a problem yeah yeah it's hard we, we don't tell ourselves no enough um i i have yeah. kind of like a similar thing that i've talked about with with as as cushy as kind of developer jobs have become and how much we've been given like all of these gold stars about how important we are to the the company and how much we've been able to take uh we've forgotten like you said at the end of the day all that matters is what the user experiences like they don't give a shit about our technologies they don't give a crap about how good we feel about our technological decisions like they just want it to work they want it to work every time and they want it to be fast exactly no user ever said oh this is a micro front end i really like that <laughs> they don't give a crap <laughs> but i don't know how to deliver that message to like every developer on earth <laughs> without just going around i don't know conference to conference to conference and speak about the same topic yo care about the user yeah don't care that much about learning redux svg if that's a thing i don't know i've been feeling like it the only thing that's going to capture people's attention again yeah. is some type of maybe uh you know our jobs being taken by uh some type of in, in intelligence or some type of market shift that diminishes the role of the developer um because i think that it's just it's just too cushy right now like no one can hear it because yep. they're like oh well that's not the reality that i live in like i get to just spend all day like learning and reading yeah. blog posts so why wouldn't i i think it's going to end i think this like honeymoon period that we have right now right now we're in the best period of of front end and web development overall i think yeah because it's going to get way more automated and like the entry point people always ask me what do you mean it's going to get automated am i going to be out of a job like they immediately get defensive and they're like as a programmer i'm going to have a job forever and i'm like i'm not saying that you're not going to have a job but you're not going to move rectangles with css for days and getting paid like 15 20000 euros per month for it your the entry bar for becoming a developer is not going to be learn a bunch of HTML and CSS is going to be way, way higher. And I don't think people realize how high the bar is going to get one day because everything that we're doing right now is slowly getting automated. But if people don't believe that, they should just look back, I don't know, five years for, for a simple landing page. You had to know a person who knows a person who knows a person who's the person in the city who is doing web pages, websites, as we call them. And he was charging like $5,000 for one website. It was the shittiest website, but he was the only person, right? And now, like if you need a landing page, you go to, I don't know, Wix, Webflow, whatever these drag and drop tools are, and you whip up a landing page and you pay, I don't know, 10, 15, $20, and that's it. So if that could have gotten automated, what are we doing right now? I don't know, fetching data from GraphQL and looping over a list and displaying data in rectangles? <laughs> that's gonna get automated too, but everyone is refusing to believe it. I don't know, it's just, it's just weird. Yeah, no. I guess we're too it, it, defensive and scared maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it is. And I, like, I it, it seems kind of like a mixed bag, right? Because I think that that's part of the reason that people keep grabbing for like new things, right? They think that they can outrun it. Um, but I think that we probably tend to agree on the idea that all of this stuff is product. Like that 
that at the end of the day, what you need to be investing in is a better sense of, of product, how to get things to people faster, how to yeah. charge money for them and uh, and like go from there, like be able to live in a constrained system where you're offering a service and someone wants to pay you for it. Yeah. And you've been on this. You've been on this for a while. You've been making um, a, a bunch of stuff and you've actually documented your transition kind of from focusing solely on open source work and going into product. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a lot about that. But you you kind of, as far as I remember, you kind of like cut your teeth on kind of like info products with like okgoogle.io, which is documenting all of mm-hmm. the available commands in uh, it, for okgoogle. Is that is that about right where you kind of started these like products? Yeah. Sorry to all the listeners who had this podcast on speaker. Right now they're G thingy is going to start speaking. Oh, usually when they do YouTube reviews, yeah, 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 they mute that word because it's going to trigger a bunch of Google Home devices. But anyway, yeah, that was that yeah, that was my first problem basically that I had. I was a I was a huge Android fan, still am. I'm not using it, but I am an Android fan. I wanted to know the latest and greatest what's going on. So I was a big fan of voice assistants, but I couldn't find a list of all the commands. So I was hunting for forums, Reddit, all of these places, but it was never up to date. So I decided to just to just make a final list of all the commands and make it interactive and make it fun with a lot of animation. Like that intro animation, I spent, I don't know, a week or two weeks on it. And like people, I was working in a co-working space and everyone was like, why don't you just release it without animations and stuff? Like, who cares? And then I was so convinced that people are going to share it because of the animation. And that was actually the end result. Everyone was like, holy shit, did you see the animations on these websites? And basically, with just a bunch of work on animation, you're getting a lot of marketing for free, which is another another little tip. That's so fascinating. So so, so your impulse was right then, that, that if you can get this animation amazing, that people would want to share it and, and then kind of fall into the product. Yeah, but like my end goal, is, it, it may sound weird, but my end goal wasn't ever to, I don't know, okay, Google, oh, I said it again, made it to TechCrunch and The Verge and all of these websites, like really, really popular technology websites for free. I didn't even contact them. That wasn't my end goal. My end goal was like, I want to solve this problem for me. Yeah. I have a problem. It may be like really niche. It may maybe three other people in the world care about it. I don't care. I want to solve it for me. Now I think it still gets a lot of users and now it still redirects traffic to my other products. So even though it's free, it was a good start for me to try myself as a maker, to make something and just publish it and put it out there. Yeah, that's Yeah. I was supposed to open source it, but I never got to it. <laughs> and then uh, around that time you also started React Academy. Tell me about that. So React Academy was started a little bit later. I was, uh, yeah, it was started a little bit later. Actually, I started with CZ before React Academy. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. A really basic web app of CZ was made in 2017. It was just a web app. It wasn't a native app. It wasn't a browser that you download. It was just uh, a URL that you go to. And I made it because also I had a problem. I was freelancing. I was supposed to preview my website on multiple devices at once. And the client wanted everything to be like pixel perfect. So my workflow was change a line of code, switch the phone to iPhone, then to iPad, then to Nexus, then to Google, then to whatever. And I was like, I have to solve this by making a tool that's gonna preview all of the devices at once. But after I solved the problem for me, I stopped freelancing. So I wanted to do I wanted to do training, I wanted to start teaching. And together with Nick Graff and my ex-boss from, from the company I was freelancing, we did a workshop together. 
And then I saw like, what is the experience of giving a workshop? And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Like first I was scared, like I, the feeling that we were talking about, like the imposter syndrome, am I adequate enough, yeah. enough to be a teacher? Do I know enough to actually be able to teach? But after we've done the first workshop, I'm like, fuck yeah, I can definitely do this. <laughs> so I just asked them, do you wanna, do you wanna turn this into a brand, into a business, like to focus ourselves on it? And they were like, no, we don't, we, we have other stuff to do. So that's how I turned out. Like I spent a month or, or two just working on a landing page and the brand. And I decided to devote myself to teaching. So for, I don't know, almost three years, I'm doing a lot of workshops. It's getting old. I'm getting tired, but yeah, it's, it's getting a little yeah. old. How many do you th estimate you've done at this point? I have no idea. I haven't counted, but sometimes I have like a month or two free. And then when I'm going at it, it's like every week, one or two workshops. Oh, gosh, it's a lot of travel, right? It's a lot of travel. The travel part is the one that sucks. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was that was the the, the route yeah. to to start teaching. Now, I imagine that when you made that transition of you know from doing from doing open source or having an info product into teaching, mm -hmm. you had to learn about a lot about how to set your own value. And like you were saying, you did your first course, you were nervous about it, and then realized like, oh no, I I definitely have a lot to share on this topic. How did you kind of yeah. come to and like decide your value in teaching those those courses? Yeah, the first price was determined by, by the team that we're working with. So they they suggested the price and I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? We can charge that much for a <laughs> workshop? Are you crazy? And they're like, what are you talking about? This is nothing for teaching. Like people would pay you even more. So then when I went on my own, I was always pushing the limit for every workshop. I would increase the price. So sometimes it would fail and a company would be like, no, that's too much for us. And I would never go down and be like, no, 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 wait, actually I have another price. So I'd be like, okay, I lost that training. Okay. But I was always pushing it. And since I started until now, I think it's more than doubled in, in, in value. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and I think when I'm when I'm gonna decide to reduce my workshops and my travel and so on, I'm not gonna reduce them by rejecting companies. I'm gonna reduce them by increasing the price, like double the price. <laughs> if someone pays for it, I'm gonna go and do a workshop at their company. It's I don't know if it's a smart business strategy. I don't know if should, someone should listen to this, but it, it works for me. So yeah. No, I think I think so. I have a friend who's in business, and he's always his whole thing is like charge as much as you can, like just charge as much as you can get away with, and uh, just keep keep pushing it until you, you can't make enough money and then, you know, then drop it if you absolutely have to. He's like, but, you know, people tend to associate value by the m amount of money that you ask for. That's also true. Yeah. And so if you ask for a ridiculous, irrational amount, they just assume that you're worth a ridiculous, irrational amount and they can't afford to pay you at this time. Yeah. Yeah, th that works. I mean, when people see the price, they're like, hmm, this is probably some quality training. Yeah, yeah. So that absolutely works, yeah. Awesome. So what what kind of, what sizes are the groups of people that you're usually training? I don't know, around 40 to 50 people usually. Oh, wow. And yeah, a lot of other people suggested for me to get like a teaching assistant or something. But what I did is I still solved the problem with technology. I built like an interactive web app for guiding students through the through the exercises. Yeah. So instead of giving them like a GitHub repo with a bunch of zip files that they download and blah, 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 I just tell them, go to this website, register, and then you can follow after I'm done with talking about a topic. Let's say we're talking about, I don't know, use state or use 
effect. Then I'm like, just open the use use effect exercises and the web app is gonna guide you through like the solutions and hints and tips. And basically when you give them that, you reduce the amount of questions. They're like, hey, this doesn't work. Hey, the cloning didn't work. Hey, Node.js doesn't work. So they do everything online in Code Sandbox. So it's pretty easy to handle. I would even push, I'm always like telling organizers, they're asking about the limit of the group. So I'm always telling them, let's try 60, let's try 70. Because even with 40, I don't get enough questions. Like when I give them the exercises, I'm just walking around like a moron being bored because nobody is asking anything. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say like Code Sandbox, just as an aside, is such an amazing training tool. Like it takes all of that ridiculous setup. I mean, I know... Uh, there are these uh, conferences called RailsBridge, or not conferences. They're like these day of trainings around here, and they're focused mm-hmm. on helping you get you know set up and like started with with Rails. Hmm. But they have it's like a two day event, and the day before they'll have like an hour or two hour workshop just to help people get set up with the environment so they don't have to do it during the the conference. And yeah, man, like Code Sandbox just takes all that out of it, right? They're just like open this web page and start coding. Yeah. It's easy to like, if they get stuck or if they do a long break, they can come later and they can just fork the latest sandbox and just continue from the latest sandbox, even though they were working in another one. It's amazing. Amazing. Free advertisement right there. <laughs> <laughs> they know I'm a shill for them. Uh, so you so you, you have this thing, you, you start doing this training and then you kind of come back to to product. And you mentioned Sizzy. Uh, and it was a web page before where you could like kind of just like check out all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, it continues to be a Chrome extension, I believe. Uh, but you dis- you made the decision to take it private, to take it off of open source, to um, actually start charging for it and make it a native product, like an actual browser. Uh, so tell me a little bit yeah. about that transition, that story, that moment in uh, Sizi's history. So one moment that happened before that transition is I I was supposed to transition into doing paid products. So the first products that I released were mostly open source apps and they were like websites like the OKG website. (laughs) It was just a list of things. I wasn't charging for it. So for me, like the scary part of doing products was like, can I charge for something? And basically the feeling as a developer is, can I charge for something and get away with it? Because we feel scared. (laughs) We feel like pressure that everything should be free. Everything should be open source. And I wanted to like get this feeling away and just release anything just so so I try and make a paid product. So the first paid product was actually Twizy, which is this um, app for for Twitter direct messages and tweeting because I'm a huge Twitter addict and the only way for me to have Twitter on the computer but not use it is just Twizy because I can send a direct message and I can tweet but I don't read uh, anyway. So Twizy that is a Twitter client and it's a one-time payment. So that was my test of can I make this, like can I integrate payments, can I integrate uh, the backend, the database, everything on the side? Because when people look at a product, it's just like this tiny front-end part that they're looking at. And they're like, oh, I could do this myself in like three days. Yeah, you can do it. But everything else that it takes to launch a product is like a huge pain in the ass. Yes. So f- starting from the landing page, the backend, the database, the marketing, the whatever else you need to do, it was a lot of work with Twizy. So I was like, huh, now I'm ready to make a subscription product. So after the launch went great, after a lot of people bought the app, I decided to continue working on, I decided basically to continue working on CZ first of all, because I need it for me. When I saw that you can develop web apps by looking at multiple devices at once, I don't want to go back and look at one device. But I was like, um, I was like, I'm not going to sell this. I'm not going to make it paid until 
I'm satisfied with it. Until I use it daily and it's good enough for me, for my usage as a developer, I'm not gonna try to sell it. So that was the, the bar that I, that I set for it. If I don't wanna use it, probably other developers who are experienced are gonna be like, ah, I don't care for this. So I hired someone even like way before I started making money out of it. And the goal was to take down the web app, to close the open source repo, and to make a native Electron app that's basically the, the browser. So we wanted it to act like 100% like a browser starting from the URL bar, history, everything else. But the difference that you get is you don't have multiple tabs, but you have multiple devices that you see at the same time. And the, being a web app, it was like very limiting by using iframes. And we couldn't do everything that we wanted to do, like simulate the real user agent. So when you're simulating an, an iPhone, you're actually simulating a user agent from an iPhone. So the media queries and stuff like that works. And like, I don't know if you're using Express or whatever, it detects that it is an iPhone. So we had a lot of things that we couldn't do in a web app and that was the number one reason why we did it like as a, as a native app. And then we have one problem there that people think that native apps shouldn't be subscriptions. This is really interesting. <laughs> so when it's a web app, when it's like this SaaS product, when you log in on the web, it kind of makes sense that, I don't know, other people update it for you and yeah. you feel like you're paying for that. But because this is something that you download on your computer, we had a lot of friction where people on Product Hunt the first day were like, oh, this shouldn't be a subscription. It should be a, a one-time payment. Interesting, interesting. Like I know that uh, Adobe had a really hard time going from the like box yeah. model to the service model effectively. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that web developers still have that kind of concept because you know most of us work on some type of SaaS product that is a monthly subscription. Yeah, but when it's a native app and you download it, you feel like it belongs to me. Yeah. It's mine now <laughs> and I shouldn't pay again for this because it's mine. But yeah, uh, I don't, I didn't care that much about the, the friction and I learned, um, I want to say this for everyone like who is about to launch a product, but they get like, they read all the negative things about that, that are said about a product online. And usually the negative things are like, um, this should be free. I can build this myself in two days. Like I like how people underestimate the work <laughs> that goes into something. They're like, I can build this in two days. And then they're like, this shouldn't be a subscription or they tell you what price this should be. So they're like, um, based on Electron and React 16 point something and also you're using, I think that you should be $4.7. I like how other people are bigger <laughs> experts at pricing your own product. But I wanna tell you like the, ha uh, the haters online are way louder than your actual customers. Like the first day what was happening is we were, we were seeing like this crazy amount of people coming in and buying the app without seeing anything. They were just buying it. There's no trial there's no free download you can just buy it huh. and so many people bought it but but the feedback online if you go to product hunt there are a lot of positive comments but the top comments are like mm, this is not worth it this should be free this shouldn't be a subscription so I didn't let those comments this comments discourage me because I was like I'm gonna focus yeah. if I get like only two customers I'm gonna double down on them and make this the perfect product for them because those are the people who are like huh I understand how this five dollar tool can actually make me shit ton of money <laughs> if I use it every day instead of this other thing so that was my my way of thinking about that and how did that work was it an immediate success in terms of uh, of money coming to you or did it take a little bit of time to really grow that into something that was self-sustaining it's 
I, I don't know what to call it. I, I talk with a lot of people who are in like funding and financing and startups and shit. And they're like, this is the craziest shit we've ever seen. <laughs> and because like in one, two weeks, the, the amount and the numbers were pretty crazy. But I don't want to make it sound like something magical happened in two weeks. This product was for free, open for free for two and a half years. Yeah. It was open source. It was available for free. I, I mean, the open source didn't get any contributions beyond, I don't know, the first, second week, couple of people fixed some bugs. And then after that, it was just issues. Nobody bothered to, to do anything in the app. But it was free and the analytics were showing, I don't know, I think above seven to like 10,000 people each month for the free app. Wow. So naturally, most of those users, I, I wouldn't say most, I don't have the exact number, but some of those people converted to, to paid users. So I cannot say that the magic thing happened like overnight or something. It, it took a long time actually to make something out of it. Well, it, that brings up an interesting question for me is that would you go that path again? Um, because obviously you had an audience at that point where you launched the product. So you had a really big audience, um, you know, so people who now didn't really have another option um, except to start paying for this thing. And so they already they already had a sense of the value and now it was native. So it was going to have the benefits that you talked about, about not being in iframes, being able to do the, you know, it, it seems like maybe the the value was immediate to a bunch of people. Um, would you go that route again? Or do you think that you could pull it off not having gone the open source route? I think for this kind of product, it, it wouldn't, it would have worked like one way or the other way because something like this like doesn't exist. I mean, there are a couple of, there were a couple of alternatives. People always bring back that Chrome extension from like 2007 <laughs> and they're like, isn't this like this Chrome extension? I'm like, no, it's a native, like we worked six months on this thing. Like it's a real browser. And like when you compare the web app to the native app that we have right now, we added like, tons and tons and tons of more features. Like you have screenshots and screenshots with the device frame and you have photo studio and you have yeah. all of these options. So I think people who were users, who were fans, when they saw the landing page, they're like, oh, this is the same thing, but but, but like on steroids. Yeah. So I would totally pay for that. Maybe people who were new to it and didn't know the value. And I kind of get them. I don't usually pay for stuff unless it has a trial. Sure. So I get the frustration, oh, this doesn't have a trial. How am I going to use it without? But we, we added a 30-day return policy, a refund policy. So when someone is not happy within the period of 30 days, we just refund them. But to like not to stray away too far from your question about whether it would work, I think with this being open source and with this being free, I would kind of grew my audience with actually not th that only one thing, like I have a couple of other projects that I'm doing, products that I'm doing, open source products, YouTube, whatever, all of them contributed to my Twitter audience growing. And then when you have like 20,000 followers, whatever you tweet about, it's gonna get way more attention than someone who has like 50 followers and immediately you get the advantage. So if the question is, would I go the same route, making a lot of open source, making a lot of stuff for free, helping a lot of people on Twitter for free, having open DMs and stuff, I would definitely do it. Because a lot of people, when you're talking to them about open source and doing stuff for free and being on Twitter all the time and growing your network and going to conferences, they're like, ah, dude, you're just doing, you know, it's just for free. At the end of the day, it's not for free. Yeah. But you have two types of people, those who are thinking about, let me grow my audience and actually solve a problem, charge for that. And now because a lot of people are paying for it, we can hire more people, we can grow the theme, we can actually add more features. So it's a circle of the product being better. But what happens with most developers, they're doing open source and they're stuck in this loop forever. Yeah. Just open source, open source, open source, no money gets in, no open collectives or GitHub donations or whatever. And it's, I want to help people get out of that loop. And 
I feel a bit bad that after my article, a lot of people message me, thank you, I closed my open source repo and now I'm starting. <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> wait, don't do that to every open source repo that you have. <laughs> so it won't work in every scenario, but it can, open source can definitely grow your audience so then you can sell something, yeah. Tell me about your relationship with uh, donations in open source, because I, I know that, you know, you have this product that's been, you know, it's getting seven to 10,000 users uh, would you say a month? Yeah, yeah a month. those were the analytics of the of the old web app. So okay, and then but then what what did donations look like for a product that is obviously useful to people? It's in two and a half years, it made ninety something dollars, <laughs> and and once I tweeted about that, like, hey, here's what you get when you're making something amazing and you get like this many users. This is what you get in donations. And someone was like, oh, maybe people don't use it, and I'm like. Jackass, do you see the analytics? A lot of people use it. And the link is freaking everywhere. It was in the header, it was in the footer, it was in the app. People don't care. When you give them something for free, why would you, I don't know. It rarely happens. I don't know, I'm donating, for example, for Code Sandbox. It was free, but I'm like, fuck yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. I'm gonna donate for, I'm gonna be a patron just, just to support them. But it rarely happens that someone is like, huh, this is free, let me just pay for it. Oh man, it's it, it's kind of sad. What do you think that we need to do? Like, is is it, as simple as like, hey, you need to think about everything you make as a product and have an exit strategy that is product. Or is there like some kind of balance? You do some open source, you do some product. Yeah. Uh, you know, how does that look for you? I think it. I think it's more in the balance. Like I'm still doing open source. I just open source a library today. I open source a couple of other things that I'm reusing between projects. My goal, like, there's the difference between open sourcing something tweeting about it, reusing it for yourself, and then just leaving it alone. Maybe get an issue, pull request, whatever. Another thing is just living for open source. Yeah. Just open sourcing something and putting your entire life on it, like without thinking about money, donations, making a paid product with it or something. You're just doing open source and that's it. I, I don't see a light at the end of that tunnel. But as doing open source as a promotion to your other thing, it, it definitely works wonders, at least for me. I have like on all, on all of my repos, I have links to my other projects, whether they are open source or not open source. So whatever people, however people find me on Google or on GitHub or whatever, it always leads to something else that might be might be paid. And I think like even right now I can feel, trust me, like the listeners who are listening right now <laughs> in the back of their head, like, oh, this fucking douchebag is just thinking about money. I think like not just developers, I think as society we have it the other way around. We're pretty fucked up when it comes to thinking about money. Because if you tell to someone, uh, hey man, I'm broke, I couldn't pay my rent. And they would be like, oh, really bro, me too. You know, it's tough, blah, blah, blah. You would get like 10 friends who would immediately jump in on the conversation. Try it the other way around and tell someone, hey man, I made shit ton of money this month and I'm gonna buy a Tesla. It's gonna be like immediate awkward silence and people being like, I don't wanna talk about money. Why are you mentioning money? And it's especially like you could see this in the dev community. Like people feel, um, afraid and ashamed and actually to mention the word or make something pay like this is an open source library it yeah. it should be it should be free i think it's going to be hard to reverse that effect it should be it's going to be really hard even with github sponsors it's going to be really hard to go backward and and be like hey hey we were joking now i don't know these 10 libraries that you're relying on now they're paid the instinct of of millions of developers gonna be like, well, if this is paid, I'm gonna find the other thing that's free. And we're just gonna go for a hunt until someone basically clones your thing for free and makes it free. Yeah, yeah. Now, what what is it that you think is part of the, like, I don't know, I'd love to figure out more about like what that psychology is that 
I think that a lot of people want to contribute to open source, right? Like they want to be a part of of the community that has some type of goal that isn't just making money. And I think that that's that's interesting, right? I think that's, that's fine. Something that's very pure about uh, wanting to make something that is 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 good just for itself. But then also, I find that a lot of people also don't necessarily like adopt the spirit of open source where like I'm going to go and I'm going to help out on this project. It's like everyone wants to be like an open source inventor and it's, yeah. <laughs> and it feels, and I, I don't want to diminish, you know, the reason that we do anything, but like, I know that for me personally, sometimes it's, it's just because I lost a battle at work and we decided to go a different direction yeah. and I open up like NPM in it. I'll show those assholes. <laughs> I'm going to show like, those <laughs> bastards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wonder, like, it just seems like uh, there's so much involved, like so much of ourselves and our insecurities that is yeah. going into like open source right now. Um, and I just wonder, like, do you see that same thing? Like, do you see a solution to this? Uh, like, or is it just, hey, like, like learn how to take losses better? <laughs> Yeah, I I love what you said. Like you're you're feeding on the stars. You're gonna you you fucked up at work. Something bad happened, and you're like, now I'm gonna get that rush of open sourcing something, getting a lot of stars and likes, yeah. which are which are gonna validate me that I'm a good developer. But nobody wants to contribute to the documentation of another yeah. open source project. So it's all about the rush that you are important and stuff. So I this is like I don't know. I it's a mixed problem. It's not only about developers. Like yeah. we can discuss humans in general sure. that we have this problem that we thrive on these things like likes and, and retweets and, and stars and stuff. And the solution would be, I don't know, that's why I'm trying to talk more about it just to make it less awkward to talk about it, that you should charge for the things that you make and that right now things are super easy. Like I'm not a full stack, I, I still don't call myself a full stack developer even though all of my apps, like the latest apps are full stack. So I'm working on the backend and a client. But if you point like a gun to my head and tell me to write an SQL query, I'll be like, shoot, buddy, I don't know how to do it. So what I'm saying is it's too easy nowadays not to like, it's too easy to do to release a product, seriously. Yeah. Starting from the backend as a service, database, GraphQL as a service, whatever else you had. Also you have like amazing stuff on the front end. It's a shame that we're spending all of our time on like tweaking the VS Code theme and talking about lint settings and constantly just learning a new language, new language, new language, new framework. Just settle down on something, solve a problem. And I think that's the first hardest step to, to, to like do. When you do it, when you start getting like the first customers or first users, then it's amazing. Yeah. Like right now, I, I love my life. Right now, I, I want to get up early in the morning and just see what problems did customers have or just get random ideas. Holy shit, I can solve this for my customers. But it's a, it's a different loop right now. Yeah. It, you feel like a part of a bigger, bigger community and you feel that your work is valued. With open source, you're getting the initial rush of stars like stars, 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 but you never get this feeling when you're done with the stars, you're only getting a bunch of issues and people complaining that your work is not good enough, it didn't work for them, it didn't work, I don't know, the server-side rendering didn't work. Like I, I open source a library today, immediately after five minutes, the comment is, does this work on server-side? I'm like, I just open sourced it, for fuck's sake. <laughs> just, <laughs> I just said I had an idea, just wait for it, please. So I think when that hits people, I've seen a lot of people are getting depressed getting anxiety, getting a lot of like mental issues from from just being an open source developer. Because you did all of this stuff and now suddenly it's your responsibility to keep it updated, to get rid of those annoying GitHub pop-ups that said that you have a vulnerable, <laughs> this package will harm you and destroy your computer and then it's like some bug in Lodash or something. But 
Yeah, then it gets hard. It gets hard to be in that role when you're not getting paid, but you're responsible for five different repos and all of these people are yelling at you. And I don't, a lot of people are talking about it, but honestly, I personally, I don't see a solution. Like I'm not smart enough to say that this would be a solution. What do you, what do you think? I'm curious. You know, do you think there's a way out or? I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I really do feel like there's going to be some type of like external event that forces people to, to realize that what we're doing in isolation is not a superpower, right? The superpower is identifying a need that it, uh, that someone has in the world, solving it, and creating a relationship. And usually that involves money, right? Like yeah. you make a thing, you support it, they pay you to do that. And there's this virtuous cycle there. Yeah. And I think that right now we are so, like we think of like, you know, web development or open source and we don't, we have a hard time remembering that at the end of the day, we're just a part of a bigger thing that like makes money. Yeah. And like we get paid because we solve these like problems. And I love this this return. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, and you've expressed it beautifully, this idea of that open source isn't everything, right? And that yeah. if you want to be independent, if you want to like go out and make a difference, you're probably going to have to think beyond just open sourcing a library. You're going to have to make some type of product. You're going to have to think bigger. And instead of thinking of like consumers, start thinking about customers or clients and how to develop a professional relationship with people, not just one where you're on stage and then everyone just kind of, you know, consumes what you're, you're giving them. Yeah. That that's easy to say a lot. In in theory, it sounds so simple, (laughs) but I think it's scary. It was even scary for me. I, I, I wrote about that in my, in my blog post. It was, super scary because when you're open sourcing something it's a folder on your computer eventually you package it with some bundler or whatever you you write npm publish and it's out there yeah. it's that simple yeah. you're gonna put an emoji before the name of the library and you're like oh my god now it's a professional library because i have an emoji in it but when you when you have something that looks like it could be paid from that point to actually making it paid it's months of work yeah it's months and months and months of work. And I guess that's where the thought hits you when you're like, oh, actually money is bad, you know, I wouldn't. And the reality is you're just scared of the journey that you need to take for actually making something paid. And on the other hand, like, I also don't want to blame developers too much. I'm going to like take an example, the Electron app that we were working on. If you want to sell a native Mac app with Paddle, Paddle is a payment provider that I'm using instead of Stripe. They give you a framework, you plug in the framework, and basically you have licensing for your app, and that's it. Your Mac app is licensed. If you want to license an Electron app, you have to follow a 90-page tutorial from different people in different languages, in different, fr- like it's it's such a nightmare that we had to, be, I had to build the entire payment system myself. Like oh, wow. on the client side, like, uh, receiving the license and invalidating the license and checking the license and doing time steps and all of these things that are solved for you in the native world in Electron, like it wasn't solved. So you have to build everything from scratch. So when you Google at first, when you Google like Electron payments, Stripe, whatever, and when you don't find an out of a box solution, you're like, oh fuck, I'm too lazy. Maybe not lazy. Maybe I'm not a backend developer. I cannot do this on my own. So that's that also plays a role that some things could, could be made easy if we finally... Yeah, this is another thing that I love to talk about that in the web community, we don't we don't agree on things and we're never going to agree on things. And I think that's slowing us down. Like if we agree that for native Electron apps, this is the tech, the, the tech stack that we're usually using. It would be super easy to make like an Electron Paddle React integration yeah. and then just make it a plugin that everyone would use. But 
everyone who starts an Electron app, they're going to be like, you know what? I'm going to use a view on the front end and then I'm going <laughs> to combine it with like something else and with this kind of templates and not this CSS, this other CSS, and then you cannot use the solution. So honestly, honestly, I don't know where should we start in order to solve this problem. I, I don't know who should make a move and who should start. I think it, it is a solvable problem, but it's a, it's a problem that involves a lot of ego like the, right now, like every developer is, is filled with ego and pride. Like you're starting a new project and you're like, I'm not gonna use that boilerplate, whatever 80% of the people I'm doing, I'm gonna be smarter and change this one thing. Yeah, good luck solving that. <laughs> oh man, well, we are hitting about our time limit. Uh, I really appreciate you. I think that a lot of this starts with, you know, you just being out there talking about this kind of stuff and putting products out there and enduring that criticism of being a developer who, uh, you know, quote unquote, should have released it as open source or free or whatnot. Yeah. And uh, just telling people about your journey. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so before we go, where can uh, people find you about the internet and uh, learn more about Sizi and how it can help them out? Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter, twitter.com slash thekitze, and I'm on YouTube, youtube.com slash kitze. Probably you're going to put links in the yes, description. Absolutely. Nobody ever can spell kitze <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> so yeah, and they can find CZ at cz.co. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you for coming on today. I think that we might have to schedule another one of these because this was super fun, and I think we have a lot to talk about. Thanks, thanks. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. As you go, don't be someone who doesn't care about the customer. Take a moment to improve your product sensibilities. Regardless of what your role, putting customers first is something that never goes out of fashion. And check out Sizzy at sizzy.co. It's a great app that will save you hours of pawing at the edges of your browser and tirelessly switching mobile device settings. It's great. Thanks to our sponsors, Clubhouse and G2i, for making this episode possible. Clubhouse has made all core features completely free for teams up to 10 users. And right now, React Podcast listeners get two months free on any paid plan. So go check it out and get your project back on track. Go to clubhouse.io slash react. Contractors do not go it alone. Partner with the amazing people at G2i. Visit g2i.co today. Go to the four developers page, apply and find opportunities that you will love. G2i, we vet, you get hired. It's that simple. This episode of React Podcast was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson. You can find React Podcast on Spec, a network to help designers and developers level up. Visit spec.fm to find other shows that will take you further in your career. Help us out by reviewing this show on iTunes. Your reviews help the show grow and help us ensure great guests and awesome content week to week. To join the discussion, visit reactpodcast.com slash chat or follow us on Twitter at React Podcast. I'm at Chantastic. To stay out of the discussion but get updates, visit reactpodcast.com slash news and sign up for emails. Thanks so much for giving us your attention. We'll be in your ears again next week. Thank you.